We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. Let me pick up at verse 18 and then I'll, I'll read to the end of the, um, the chapter. Acts 18, verse 18. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Century he had his hair cut off for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus. He left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Having spent some time there, he left and passed through successively the region, Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos an Alexandrian by birth, An eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him, And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are our Father which art in heaven. We are your children upon the earth. And very, very, very soon, Lord, in the time, uh, both the day and the way of your own choosing, we will leave, Lord God, the field and we'll come home. Uh, may I, by your great grace, Holy Spirit, uh, preach like a dying man to dying men and women who will soon um, uh, be before you, Almighty God. Uh, give me uh, proper insight and solemnity and winsomeness. And all of us, Lord God, give the requisite faith to um, find Christ as you present yourself, Jesus, to us in the scriptures. If there are any in this um, auditorium this morning that don't yet know you savingly, Jesus, that today would be the day that you take them from darkness to light and death to life, even as you've done for us. Glorify your name in all the earth. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, it, my practice is ordinarily to um, expository series preacher. We just started a book, verse one one, whatever that one one is, and then we just plow through. And obviously, I don't pull out everything within a, a text, but I do try to move through the passages. If you if you have been with us in the Acts series, Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Spirit of Christ or the acts of the Holy Spirit through the servants of Jesus, gospeling, uh, carrying out the Great Commission. If you've been with us in this particular book, you know that I skipped over a portion. Uh, I skipped over verses 12 through 17. 
And when I was not a minister, wanting to be a minister, um, I was hypercritical against other ministers, which was a sin on my part. I would think, oh, why did you skip over a passage? And I would always apply nefarious reasons to it. Oh, you're just, you, you just don't want to deal with something difficult. If you look over what I, I tell you, I'll tell you why I skipped over it. Um, verses 12 through 17, we ended last week on verse 11, obviously. I skipped over that section where the Apostle Paul was taken by the Jews. He was accused of teaching false religion. He was brought before the civil magistrate, Roman magistrates, and he was then found innocent, or actually they sent him away. They didn't want to deal with the, 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 the business of religion. And then the Jews beat him. Um, we've been looking at that theme, and this is the reason I didn't preach on it this morning. We've been looking at that theme almost every passage we're finding the same thing. We're finding preaching by the Apostle Paul or other gospel servants, then the persecution of the preachers, the gospel preachers, for Christ's sake, and then perseverance. So it's that preaching, uh, persecution, perseverance. It's very cyclical, and I thought we've sufficiently handled it. One of the things I will just tell you what we see principally, and we picked it up on our confession reading, which is from the scripture, um, is the, the business that the Apostle Paul is sharing in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible uses that language. If we are Christians, true Christians, we belong to him, spiritually united by the spirit gift of faith. The Bible says it's been granted to us to believe in Jesus, but not only to believe in him savingly, but to also what? To remember Philippians 1.29? To suffer for his namesake. So the Apostle Paul is treated as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ the way they treated the master. This is a John 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you in the way that the world will treat you as lovers of me, as particularly gospel servants of me, um, that that's how they're going to treat you. They're going to treat you the same way. And so as they hated the master, our Christ, they will hate the gospel servant. Read Genesis 3.15. The Bible is the kind of the extrapolation of that business throughout. But I will tell you just briefly, and then we'll move on to today's, when you look at how the worldling, the unbeliever, the unconverted person, even if they call themselves Christians, but they're not, how they treat the true believer who loves Christ and presents the truth of Christ as found in the Bible, when you look at that painful treatment, it is painful. I've mentioned this last week. When we are converted to Jesus, God does not turn us into spiritual kryptonite. We don't walk around, well, I, my mother doesn't love me for Christ's sake anymore because I'm born again, or my wife or my husband or my kids won't come over because I love Christ and they don't. Um, we, we, it hurts. It's, it still hurts. But as painful as those things are, if you look at those things through Christological lenses, if you put your Christ lenses on, if you look at them through the pages of Scripture, then you'll see... Those things should actually work to your assurance. Our brother taught an, um, um, from J.C. Ryle, the Book of Holiness. J.C. Ryle's Book of Holiness, I've probably worked through, I don't know, three or four times, maybe five. It's on sanctification. And there's a chapter there on assurance. We have, the Bible talks about assurance. It's knowing that you know, believing that you believe. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, it should work to your assurance. It should testify you. Every thorn that you receive, for Christ's sake, should say to you that you are in a state of grace, that you are in a state of salvation, that you are beloved for Christ's sake. 
So not all painful things are, are bad. And so I, I just skipped over that. Perhaps I could have preached a sermon on that, but I didn't. So I didn't want to be redundant. Now, the method that I'm going to do this morning is a little bit different than my ordinary uh, method. I still am going to pull up from the text, but I'm, this morning's sermon is going to be a little bit of a topical sermon, though I do think the doctrines that I'm taking, which are two, if you look at um, the, um, the, the title, generally you'll find the doctrine that I'm, doctrine just is a word for teaching. That's what it means. It's not a bad thing. It's just biblical doctrine, biblical teaching, or n- not biblical teaching. So the two doctrines that I'm going to pull from this text are, are excuse me, uh, the church, the doctrine or the biblical teaching on the church, and then related to that is the doctrine of the communion of the saints. So what did we read? We read from our confession, chapter 26, on the communion of the saints. That flows out of chapter 25, which is the doctrine of the church. Chapter 24 is on marriage, which is interesting because our marriage is to reflect uh, the doctrine of the church. Christ being the head, being the husband, the church being the bride, being the body. So you have church, and then you have the communion of the saints, or the friendship or the fellowship of the members of the church. So those are the doctrines that I am going to be uh, looking at. And as I say, it's a topical sermon, but I do believe that I'm exegeting the text, which means pull out from. Exegete is a compound word in Greek, and then the isogete would be the bad thing. You read into the text. I make it say something that I want it to say. That that's not biblical. So I think I'm being biblical. Keep me, uh, keep my feet to the fire. Um, you have your Bibles open, and you can um, fact check me, as it were, as we read through. So we're going to look at the doctrine of the church. And as I say this at the very outset, we're just going to unpack the theme: the doctrine of the church and the fellowship of the members of the church. I'm not speaking on, if you're thinking, oh, now here's where he's really going to give us the hammer on being a Presbyterian or even really on being Orthodox Presbyterian. I'm not talking about any denomination of church. I'm not talking about Presbyterianism or Baptists or Episcopalians. We're going to look at, to use the language of the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, the Catholic Church. And the way that we understand that is not the Church of my youth, the Roman Catholic Church, but meaning universal this is a, a Revelation 5, uh, 7 through 9. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation that believe in Jesus, they're members of the universal or, or, or Catholic church. That's what we're going to talk about. So if maybe I could do a Sunday school or a Wednesday, why everyone should be OPC. JK, JK. Um, we're we're going to look at the church, generally considered. Now, let me step back and see how, show us how we learn what God instructs us about the church. God reveals himself to human beings in two ways. Or the Puritans would say there are two books by which God reveals himself. The book of providence, that means what happens out there, and the book of scripture, which is redemptive or salvific revelation. So one book by which God reveals himself is the book of nature, uh, general revelation. This is a psalm... Uh, 19 verses 1 through 6 the heavens declare the glory of God I've mentioned this before Psalm 139 um, in another church I'd say how many husbands watch their wives give birth to their children and you're fearfully and wonderfully made that's natural revelation general revelation and it reveals this is God revealing himself to man if God didn't want to reveal himself to man none of us would know anything about God 
And in nature, God reveals himself that he is, he exists, that he is God, that he is an all-powerful creator, he is an all-wise creator, and he's all good, and that we are creaturely. And then in providence is the government of everything that he created. Um, I can't help but think, somebody mentioned we're not having 100-degree weather anymore. I am a New Englander, um, and I've been in the South 30-something years. Um, Round about August in the South, I am coming unglued because you've got like high 90s, 3,000% humidity, and I'm pleading, please send me a 50-degree. This is like a slice of heaven. But I, I will tell you, that when you start to feel that the seasons change, you start to think to yourself, wow, like we're nine months into the year. I can remember our congregational meeting like it was yesterday. We're nine months down. I wonder how far I am on my race as a human being. Well, I'm pushing 60. You're three-fourths of the way. How? All of these things. So providence is God's government of everything. Now I'm going to say something as regards to the teaching on the church. The doctrine of the church is not revealed to us in the book of nature. God does not teach us about the nature of the church or the fellowship of the saints in the book of of creation, in the book of providence. He doesn't show it to us. There are some Christians that will tell you that God will reveal to you even Christ himself in the book of creation. That's a uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, codified a particular view that the Roman Catholic Church has, that you can come to sa- saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by looking at the book of nature. We do not believe that as Reformed Protestants. So the, We don't know about the head of the church, the savior of the church, the purchaser of the church, the owner of the church, the king of the church, Christ, from the book of nature. So you could watch a sunset A million times, you'll never know about Christ, and you'll never know about the body of Christ, which is the church, and those kind of things. So I'm not devaluing the revelation that we have. I'm just saying that what we know about Christ, and then the body of Christ, which is the church, is not found there. And it's found in the second book where God reveals himself to man. It's the book of Scripture. God reveals himself savingly to man uh, in Scripture alone. Now in the New Testament epoch, read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And so God reveals himself to us as Savior, to people that need saving, which would be sinners, and the recipients of salvation in the Bible, in the Bible alone. And then the doctrine of Christ's body, or his bride, is revealed to us by God only in the Scriptures. And so as we come here, this particular text is going to teach us about the nature of the church, but it's Bible. We learn about it in the Bible. So if we cut ourselves off from the Bible, we will not know Christ savingly. If we cut ourselves off from the Bible, we will not know the nature of his church, which is his body, uh, properly. So God reveals himself this way. And I will say that the the word of God comes before the church. And I don't want to be too, too polemical. I'm being slightly polemical. But the word of God comes before the church. The church of my youth would say things like this. We, we create, created, uh, the church created the word of God. That's not true. So the word of God comes before the church. In fact, the word of God is a manifestation of God himself. Think of Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. 1, 1. 
uh, in the beginning God. So it's not the church creating the Bible, giving, giving us the Bible. It's the church acknowledging that uh, the Bible is the word of God. Creating the Bible and acknowledging the Bible are two different uh, things. Now, the way that the Bible teaches us about anything, there are two ways that the Bible teaches truth. This is true. I am a Reformed hyphen hyphen Protestant hyphen Presbyterian Puritan hyphen hyphen Christian. And so as all of those hyphenated kind of Christians, we believe the Bible teaches truth in two ways. You believe this too, even if you aren't all those hyphenated things and you're a Christian. The Bible teaches truth implicitly or necessarily, logically deduced, or it teaches it expressly. It states it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With, with God, and the Word was God. It says it. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, is Theos. He is God. Thomas said concerning the Lord Jesus, My Kurios, my Lord, and my Theos, my God, and he worshipped him, proskuneo. He bent the knee. The Bible says it, express truth. But then there are things in the Bible that you have to naturally or necessarily logically deduce. Remember the two folks, husband and wife team, that lied concerning the sale of their property in Acts chapter 5? Remember those two? And Peter says to the husband, why have you lied to, to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you've lied to God, meaning necessarily, necessarily deduced that the Holy Spirit is God. Does that make sense? So now look at your Bibles. Let's be good Bible students, good Bereans. When you look at this text, most of the text teaches the doctrine by that um, necessarily necessary logical deduction. Most of the text. There's one verse in verse 22, which expressly states it, but I'm going to show us how to find the doctrine of the church and the communion of the saints it's legitimate. This isn't fast or loose. I'm not, this isn't smoke and mirrors. Now, you can use smoke and mirrors to use the Bible. That's twisting the scripture. But this isn't. You'll see, um, here's the, the, the necessary deduction. The Apostle Paul goes from place to place, and he goes and visits what kind of folks. The Bible will say it. He, calls, he says, in my translation, it will say brethren or the brothers. In Greek, this is a delphoi. He went and saw the brothers or the sisters in... Christ, that's the Christian church. And then he met with, and the other guys would meet with, um, people that are called disciples. Disciples of Christ. Mathetes, learners of Jesus. This is the church. And then you see the communion of the saints, the members of the church. They're building each other up in Jesus. They're teaching each other the Bible. So you see that. So this is teaching, again, in a macro kind of a view, the nature of Christ's body or the nature of Christ's bride. And the Bible uses various figures of speech for the people of of God, the church. And so this will teach it. But then the Bible will state it expressly. And I've said this a million times. J.C. Rowell is one of my favorite expositional... uh, uh, um, He's one of my favorite pastoral writers. He's very Christ-centered, holiness-centered, heaven-centered. I love him. Now, he's an Emeraldian, which is hypothetical universalism. That's another study. And maybe I differ with him on that, but I don't know. That would be another thing. 
But one of the things that I love about J.C. Rowell, he says, now, it's good to have express statements of Scripture that you can get. You don't need to go to seminary. You can a Christian with a Bible. And if it says it, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be what? Saved. Now, you know what? When you're sitting in the hospital and they say, Mr. Shortman, we got bad news for you. You're not looking for this Jonathan Edwards 27 volume set. I can tell you right now. You're not looking for some theological treatise on, on Amaraldianism or anything like that. You camp out on John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You love his son. He's loved, you, he loves you and you're on your way to heaven. There's so much benefit on those clear statements because there'll be people, oh, what about this and what about that? I don't know about all that, but I know what that says. Right here in verse, what does it say? How do I know this is teaching on the nature of the doctrine of the church? Look at verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the what? The church. So this isn't John using smoke and mirrors. We have the logical necessary deduction, and then we have the express statement. Let me give us some other express statements about the doctrine of, or the teaching, the Bible teaching on the church. And um, the, Jesus says this. This is classic. This is the church of my youth would use this and they would camp out here in Matthew 16 and John 6 and then say, what don't you silly Protestants understand? But Matthew 16, 18. I will say to you that you are Peter and there's a, Jesus uses a play on uh, words. Um, so he, 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 Peter's name was Pebble and now it's Rock. You are Peter. Cephas is the pe- small rock. Now you're Peter Petros. So he actually changes his name here. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overpower it. That means Christ's universal church, all those that truly believe, will never be destroyed. That doesn't mean that one particular physical manifestation of his church might not go away. Where are all the churches? I've said this too. Where are most of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3? Where are they now? They're all mosques. So in that corner of the world, so this doesn't mean that this particular church couldn't go away, but Christ's church will not go away. His, his blood-bought church, the true believers, cannot go away because Christ purchases us and he keeps us. Um, Acts 20, 28. And, this, and again, this, is a little, this isn't really Calvinism. I am a Calvinist, don't tell anyone. But um, I, I'm going to throw this in there and you're going to say, well, pastor, you're just giving us the Calvinism 101. I, I promise you I'm not. This is not a particular, rede- it is a particular redemption passage, but it's really, I'm getting at the doctrine of the church. Acts 20, and if, if, you're, if I'm going too fast, give me your email at the end of the, you can get my notes. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourself. This is Paul telling the Ephesian elders, uh, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's episcopoi, Uh, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Christ purchased the church with his own blood, and then he tells us, uh, Paul tells us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that while we're on earth, the church on earth is going to be mixed multitude. There will be goats and sheep. There will be wheat and tares. And then actually, in those goats, you've got some wolves wanting to eat the, the lambs. But he says, in the church that he has purchased... So this, sometimes you hear ministers say, my church. I think maybe a time or two I've said that, but it always gives me the willies. I get convicted. I'm just a fancy foot washer. It's not my church. You all don't belong to me. You all belong to Christ. 
He has purchased you with his blood. I didn't. He purchased me with his blood. So I'm a servant among servants. So he, he owns the church. And he himself is the king of it. There's no properly understood a pope of the church. He's the king of the church. Maybe I'll throw a little something in about the pope in a bit. Uh, Ephesians 5. So if you are a Christian woman, this is a text that, uh, if you're a Bible Christian woman, and I'm not saying this is the only two texts, but a lot of times Christian women use this one when they get married or um, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. So Ephesians 5. Husbands should listen to this, but I'm going to not pick on their earthly husbands, but I want to get at the idea of what Christ is to the church. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being a savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to the husbands in everything. Husbands, okay, this should be to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as how? You're supposed to march around the house saying, Zig, Heil, woman, obey me. Just kidding. Just kidding. No. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. That's the church. That's what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching the nature of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and then the fellowship of the members. Now, when we're talking about the business of church, it is a communal idea. And because it's communal, it strikes our flesh, even the flesh of believers. True true believers, real Christians, go to heaven Christians, you're born again. Do we still sin against God? In thought, word, and deed, every day. Do we still have the flesh? Romans 7, 1 Peter chapter 1 or 2, James chapter 4. Our flesh in the members wages war against the Holy Spirit inside of us. So we're kind of like, uh, we do stuff that we don't want to do. We don't do the stuff we do want to do. And because of that internal warfare, even in the life of a true believer, we are disinclined to believe what God says on the nature of the church. Now, certainly this is true for the unbeliever, because the unbeliever has only one nature, the fallen nature. And so they, as soon as they hear a communal idea, uh, many years ago there was a Marine in the church and he was teaching, he had a couple kids, three or four kids, and he was teaching the kids to share. And, uh, and so one of the kids said, share your goods with little sister. And then he was trying to teach like, everything belongs to, to, to Jesus. And you could see even in the little kids, they did not want to share they wanted all of their little sibling stuff to belong to them. They wanted their little siblings to serve them, and they did not want to serve. Well, it's kind of funny when you look at a little kid like that. But that's how all of our flesh is. Our flesh is like a Gentile tyrant. We, we essentially say this. I exist not to serve, but to be served. And so even though right now in the church people use the word community, it's kind of a buzzword. The church is a community term or concept, which is true. But actually, even when we use the term, our flesh doesn't like it. We only want community insofar as community will do what? Meet our every need. So when we come here and we're like, church, union of the saints, we serve them as we serve Jesus, our flesh is disinclined to believe what the Bible really teaches about it. Um, so I just throw that out there because I've, I've often said 
We live in times right now of low ecclesiology, low understanding in the church. But those times have been since Genesis 3, 1 through 8. The moment we fell, our first pat- Adam and Eve fell, the moment we did, our flesh does not want community. Our flesh wants supremacy over God and everyone else. We want to be served and not to serve. But Christ comes along with the doctrine of the church and flips that on its head. Because Jesus says, I did not come to be served. I came to do what? To serve. And so when we come here and you think, well, there are a lot of errors on the church. That's true. And our brother Tony said something interesting this morning. Um, uh, It was a quote by C.S. Lewis, which I often don't quote C.S. Lewis for many reasons. But he said that Lewis said, you know, that oftentimes errors comes in pairs. And I thought of that, and, and it was related to my sermon. On the, on the doctrine of the church, what we see here, if I were to say the two main errors that you can see out there is exactly spot on with Lewis. The first one is a denial of the doctrine of the church because of hyper-individualism. You deny that there is a communal aspect to Christianity. And this is a person that says something like this, it's just me and Jesus. I believe in Jesus, there's no community, it's just me, Jesus, the cat, our power at the, TV, at the house, and there's no gathering together on the Lord's Day. There's no communal aspect to Christianity. That's one error, and that's because of the flesh. Beloved, that's not biblical. And when something's not biblical, I don't mean to pick on anybody's feelings. That's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. So if someone says, it's just me and Jesus, I just read a couple of passages, Acts 20 and Ephesians 5. Does the Bible say Jesus just died for me and no one else? The Bible says he died for the church, ecclesia, the community. So Jesus didn't die just for a spare finger. He did die for the finger and the arm and the back and the foot, but not us alone. It's the community aspect. And so we want to have God's view on everything. We want to be Bereans. So if someone says, oh, the church is a bunch of hypocrites, well, so are you. Join the club. Come on down. So, so when you find it's just me and Jesus, those people are not reading the Bible. I'm not picking on them. But if someone says, oh, I totally love Jesus, I totally read the Bible, I just don't go to church, you totally don't read the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, you'd come to church. Because Jesus died for the church. And he purchased the church. So the Bible teaches it. So hyper Individualism is wrong. Now, the other end of the spectrum is also the prevalent error that we see on this. And this is the church of my youth. This is not a a, a denial by the individual uh, flesh uh, that there is a body. This is the body usurping the rights of the head. This is the church of my youth. And not just the church of my youth, the Roman Catholic Church. But, But this is the flip side of that. And what do I mean by that? This is where the body usurps the rights of the head. So rather than Christ saving, the error is seen in the church saves. Rather than the proclamation come to Christ, the proclamation in this kind of error on the church will be come to the church. Does that make sense? So then the the rights and the privileges which belong to Christ alone are transferred to the body. So the body usurps the rights of the head. That's unbiblical. Notice in the text, are the guys running around, and I'm not, I really, 
I don't feel polemical. You may think that I am being polemical. I don't feel it. Maybe I am. Are the guys out preaching, be a Presbyterian, be an Episcopalian, be a Roman Catholic, submit yourself to the Roman pontiff. Are they preaching the church? Tell me from the text. Look at verse 28. What are the guys preaching? Christ. Christ. Believe in Christ. Study the scriptures and find Christ. I, 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 I am not being foolish. It's not just the Roman church that does this. There are countless other churches that preach the church. I think we should teach about the church or preach about the church where it's biblical. But the body never takes the rights of the head. I think George Whitfield, aside from the Apostle Paul, was the greatest evangelist that ever lived. And he quotes, uh, George Whitfield quotes John Wesley. I promise I'm not an Arminian, but I'm going to give it. Supposedly, John Wesley had a dream where he went to the gates of hell and he said to the gatekeeper, are there any Presbyterians in hell? And the answer came back, yes. He said, are there any Baptists in hell? And the answer came back, yes. He said, are there any Episcopalians in hell? And the answer came back, yes. And then he went to the gates of heaven and he said, are there any Presbyterians in heaven? And the voice said, no. Are there any Baptists in heaven? And the voice said, no. Are there any Episcopalians in heaven? And the voice said, no. There are only lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Only true believers here. Only members of the true church here. You see, you see. John Wesley got it right. That's right. Sectarianism is obnoxious. Am I Presbyterian? Yes. Am I, a, am I OPC? I bleed Westminster. I love the Puritans. But the church is way bigger. And sectarianism is obnoxious, I will just tell you. Is we don't run around, am I a Calvinist? We don't run around telling people, come to Calvin and be saved. Believe upon the name of Jesus and you'll be saved. Love Christ. So the church is way, way bigger. Now, if you think, Pastor, I think you're picking on the church of your youth. Let me give you two quotes. Pope John, let's see, 22nd, 1244 to 1334. The Savior himself is the door of the sheepfold. I am the door of the sheep. Into this fold of Jesus no man may enter. So far, so good. Here's the bad part. Unless he's led by the sovereign pontiff, and only if they are united to him, meaning the sovereign pontiff, can he be saved. And the Roman pontus is the vicar, meaning the substitute of Christ in his personal representative on earth. That's wrong. That's the body seeking to usurp the rights of the head. Now, the, the definition of the church. So in verse, what, what did we say? Was it verse um, 27? Is We have, the, we have um, the statement of the church. Yeah, verse 22. Excuse me. So there, the, the Greek word there, there are two Greek words in there's the first one, the main Greek word for church is ekklesia. And ekklesia, the, the noun is ekkaleo, the called out ones. And then he uses the word for synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. But James uses the, the transliteration of the Hebrew synagogue in James chapter 2 for the Christian church. And that means the gathered together ones. And so when we're looking at what does the Bible teach us on the nature of Christ's body, we are the called out ones. And we are the gathered together ones. What are we, beloved, what are we called out from as, as Christians? What are we called out from? The Bible says it. Sin, 
the dominion of Satan, the service of Satan, law-breaking, all of these things were called out of darkness. And what are we gathered together to and in and for? We're, 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 we're gathered together in Christ. We're brought from darkness to light, from death to life. And we're gathered together now as the children of God. Read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? What fellowship do children of light have with the children of darkness? It doesn't mean that you can't go to work with unbelievers. You, you, of course you have to. But it means we're, we're new. We're new creatures. Christ has made us new creatures. And we're the separated ones. For, not Pharisee. Pharisee means the separated ones. And um, Sadducee means the righteous ones. Sadak, the priest Sadak, righteous in Hebrew. But we are the separated ones. By God the Holy Spirit, by God the Holy Son, separated from sin, in Christ. That's the church. We're, we're gathered out. And the Bible will use various expressions of churches. It will mean the regional church, Galatians. The, Galatia was a region. The, the various churches in that region. And there's a connectionalism among the churches. And it will say the church in a, a local church. The church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus. So a local church. But then the Bible will say, as we read it, Ephesians 5 and Acts 20, it will use the church in reference to the mystical church. The Presbyterians believe in mystical aspects of our religion. There are gobs of mystical things in our religion. The nature of the Trinity is one. The hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ is another. The atonement of Christ's blood is another. Tons of things that we believe because the Bible says it, but can we plumb the depths of it? No. So the Bible will refer to the, the mystical body of Jesus, which is all of the church throughout the whole world. That, that's, we are, the moment we first believed in Jesus, we are, we are united to him by the spirit gift of faith. And the moment we are united to him, we are united to every other true believer of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That, that's the mystical church. And the Bible here refers to certain names that members of the church receive. We're brothers. And I want you to think about that. I know Presbyterians don't use that term, brother, sister. It's more Baptistic. I use it all the time because it's biblical. And then people think I've slipped a, a gear and I'm not really a Presbyterian. It, it's, it's biblical. If the Bible calls us children of God or brothers or sisters, or those kind of things, it's biblical. I'm against unbiblical titles. I, that's why I don't, not for reverend. It's not biblical to call the minister a reverend. You want to call him something? Call him doulos, call him servant, call him pastor, call him teacher, call him elder, but not reverend. It's not biblical. And the same thing, if the Bible says something's biblical, we ought not to look down our nose on it and say, well, what are you, a fundamentalist Baptist or something? Well, if they're using something rightly, I want to use it. Here's the nature of the church. We're brothers and sisters. Well, how does that work? How does God take a bunch of people, look in this room, I'm born above the Mason-Dixon line. Some people are born below the Mason-Dixon line. Some people have this much melanin. Some people have different melanin. How does he make us brothers and sisters? By his blood. So we are, the church is, the bride of Christ. We are the flock of Christ. We are the family of God. And see, this is why I prayed in the beginning. Now, in any family, this is true. You know this if you have a family. <laughs> we love each other. You, we love each other. Our family, earth family. Do sometimes earth family members really do nasty, bitter, mean things that hurt the daylights of their other earth family? Yes. 
So if people say, I don't go to church anymore because the pastor said hell once or someone looked weird at me at church. No, you don't go to church because you don't want to go to church and you don't want to be with the people of God. That's the bare reason. I'm not picking on anybody, but that's the facts. Because would you do the same thing with your family? The reason I'm not going with my family is because they're all goofballs. Yes, just like us, we're all goofballs. And we hurt each other all day long. But what's the thing that makes you stick it out with your family? You love them. Because they're your mom, they're your dad, they're your sister, they're your brother. Why do we keep going back to a church that's filled with people that still sin? Because we love them. That's what's going on here. That's the communion of the saints. They're traveling around meeting people because they love them. And one group doesn't know as much Bible as the next group. And the group that knows more Bible goes and helps them. That's the priesthood of the believers. Why? Because they love them. So we are the family of God. And if we started to live like and act like it, talk about transform America. Let's it make America great again. If the church acted like a gigantic family. And then the Bible calls us, as we've mentioned, the ecclesia, the called out separated from sin, separated for holiness. Imagine if the church, just imagine, I know this is a stretch, if, we're, if we thought sin was so obnoxious that it almost made us ill to think about it or to commit it, as the, the professing church. Could you see that or hear that? Would, peop, would people notice that? The problem with the church right now, and I'm not picking on anybody of the church, is we look too much like the world. The world has evangelized the church and they've won. <laughs> we look like the world. The music is like the world. The teaching's like the world. The dress is like the world. Everything's like the world. And we don't look separate from sin, for God, for holiness. But that's the church. And then one of the other things it calls us is we're disciples. And disciples methetes. It means learner of. We learn of Christ as we study Christ in Providence. We learn of Christ as they're doing here by studying Christ in the Bible. We're Christ students. I went to the wedding on, what was it, Friday night. I love the minister. The minister, the whole service was so, it was tripping with Christ. That's a, that's a Christian. That's a Christian church. If you go to a church and they're not, they're not talking about Christ, the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of the Bible of Scripture, that's not a Christian church. I don't care what they call it. I don't care if it has a beautiful stone, everything. It's gorgeous. I'd rather be in a cardboard box that tells me about the Christ of the Bible because that's a church. I was in Notre Dame of Strasbourg, which is an, an explosion of idolatry, and then I was in downtown Kaiserslautern, and I went to a, a, a church, a Protestant church, that was a stone church that had a pulpit and wooden benches. That's where I want to go. I, w- I want to go where the, where the Christ of Scripture is presented. Not this building, which is an explosion to idolatry, Notre Dame, Our Lady. You see what I mean? So when, when, we, when we come here... We are learners of Christ. And I'll just throw this out. As a professing Christian, are you a learner of Christ? Are you? Do you study him? Do you think of him? Do you talk about him? If I followed you around, would I hear you say the name Jesus ever? If I could climb in your head, would I ever hear you think the name Jesus? Are you looking at providence saying, what is Jesus teaching me by this? Beloved, that, that, that's, that's this. And then, and then when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, 
we often talk about the church, Puritans talk about the church in two estates. It doesn't mean two different churches. It means two different views. They would talk about the church at, um, at work and then the church at rest. They would talk about the church vic- uh, militant and the church victorious. And let me just throw this out there. I'm not a post-millennial reconstructionist, blah, 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 blah. I am not for hurting other human beings as Christians. The church does not wield a middle sword. That's the state. The church wields the sword of the, spe- the, the, the spirit, the, the Bible. And so when someone says the church militant, you will find some goofball Christian who thinks we're supposed to go hurt people and say that's how we're going to spread Christianity by hurting people. Oh, no, I'll come visit you in jail. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The church militant is the church militant fighting against what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And how do we fight? Not with bombs and bullets, on our knees, with the word of God. That's the church militant. And when will we be the church at rest? Turn in your Bibles. This is how I want to close the sermon. Revelation 21. This is a church. This is what, you, beloved, as a, as a Christian, you are the bride of Christ. As a Christian, you are the body of Christ. As a Christian, you are a lamb of Christ. And this is, this is what you're going to take part in. This is the doctrine of the church. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their part will be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Beloved, that's what you are. You are a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the last day we will be part of that glorified church. Glory to Christ's name. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.